Will voluntary action, even by huge corporations, ever be enough to fully decarbonize the economy? Climate One conversations feature all aspects of the climate emergency, the individual and the systemic, the exciting and the scary. I'm Greg Dalton. In December 2020, the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions issued a letter calling on President-elect Biden to return to the Paris Climate Agreement and work with Congress on ambitious, durable, and bipartisan solutions. The letter was signed by 42 American companies, including Amazon, General Motors, and Walmart, and called climate action a business imperative. Leveraging American investment and innovation toward the technologies of tomorrow will create jobs, drive growth, and strengthen U.S. competitiveness. Near-term climate actions can contribute significantly to our economic recovery. Companies that are very much pro-climate action, that are acting in their own operations, are mostly silent on public policy. Bill Weil is founder and executive director of Climate Voice and former sustainability director at Facebook. He'll join us later in the program to talk about how employees are pressing companies to do more than talk about climate. We don't often recognize how important it is to group morale to feel as if you have the moral high ground. We'll also hear about the history of corporate obstruction from Barbara Fries, author of Industrial Strength Denial, Eight Stories of Corporations Defending the Indefensible, From the Slave Trade to Climate Change. First, how are companies and their CEOs taking action beyond their corporate walls on climate, racial injustice, and other social issues? What I'm looking for is organizations who are aligning their lobbying and their campaign contributions with all of the work that they're doing inside their organization. Mike Toffel is professor of environmental management at the Harvard Business School and founder of the Climate Rising podcast. Two years ago, he wrote an article about new CEO activists taking stands on controversial social issues, such as North Carolina's bathroom bill and the DACA program for people who came to this country as children, issues not obviously related to the company's bottom line. This is not solar company managers saying we need a price on carbon, which everyone would attribute to sort of, well, of course they're saying that, that's in their bottom line interest. We started seeing companies sort of speaking out on these issues, as you mentioned, uh, religious freedom laws or DACA. And one of the things is that CEOs, when they speak out on issues that are not obviously related to their bottom line, it's newsworthy. And so that's actually what puts it on the front pages as with a discrimination framing. Now that's, We've seen this in other areas, right? We've seen companies be threatened by customer boycotts and by, in response, boycotts. And so Chick-fil-A is probably the most famous example where the head of Chick-fil-A uh, was speaking out against gay marriage. And uh, you had a response from the mayor of Boston, the mayor of Chicago, who said, well, Chick-fil-A may want to rethink their expansion into our markets because that's not the way we think. Uh, there were some boycotts of Chick-fil-A by those who opposed uh, the leader's perspective. But then in response, there were what were called boycotts, people who said, let's go organize and get in line. So there is some opportunity for sort of customer aversion and also customer proclivity to align themselves with some of these CEOs' topics. But on climate, you found no evidence that CEOs are more credible on climate than celebrities or other messengers. So if we think about climate, what are the incentives and risks and are they effective if they speak out about climate? Yeah. So one of the reasons I got into the whole space of CEO activism in the first place is with the conversation kind of stuck in the U.S., in part driven by different political philosophies, but also in part driven by misinformation, driven in part by industry, uh, like decades of fossil fuel misinformation, some think tanks that are promoting misinformation. CEOs have had uh, have played a role of trust. They've, they've been trusted for a long time in the US. And so it was gonna be interesting to study, I thought, whether CEOs, if they spoke out uh, on behalf of the need for climate regulation, both to mitigate the emissions, as well as perhaps to invest in some resilience to protect our cities and protect our, our countryside against the effects of climate change, whether that was going to make a difference in how people thought about the issue. And unlike uh, issues about religious freedom, whether that's a discriminatory topic, when we tried a whole bunch of different things where we, we looked at whether CEOs spoke out, talking about climate change is uh, a problem for the next generation, it's a problem of economic inequity, uh, of limiting growth, uh, a moral issue, no matter what we threw at it, it did not sway the public opinions. And that was true also when we 
uh, expose people to conditions talking about celebrities speaking about this. So it seems like on these issues, views are a bit more entrenched than they were on some of the issues uh, about sort of religious freedom and whether that was a discriminatory topic. Well, what are the risks and opportunities for a, a CEO speaking out on climate? You've written about you know, Jeff Immelt and CEO of, uh, was CEO of General Electric, talking about climate. It's a good way to sell their wind turbines. There's sort of a win-win. You kind of change the rules. It benefits your company. That's kind of pretty much all upside for General Electric. What are the risks and benefits for a CEO stepping out on climate? What we saw is that CEOs tend to do it when their employees push them to do it or when they think it's useful for recruiting new employees. Now, um, the risk is, well, what about the employees who don't believe this? Or what about customer bases who don't believe this? So you have to sort of think about, does it align with the corporate values that we have? Does it align with the culture we want to have? And it's a little tricky because climate is a long-term problem. Um, it's going to affect people differentially, depending on where you live and literally where you live in a city. Are you in a flood zone or, or not? Of course, where you live across the country as well. Um, but but my sense uh, in teaching MBA students, as I have for the last almost 15 years, is that this generation really wants to work at a company where they feel it's mission-driven. And part of that mission is making sure society is sort of moving in a, in a direction that's more equal, that's more thoughtful, that's going to be protective of the American dream, and this is an area where climate change really could, the discussion about climate change could really resonate with those types of employees. And it's not just MBAs. I think, you know, we're seeing survey data that folks across uh, the age groups want to work at a company that's mission driven. So what I'm looking for is organizations who are aligning their, their lobbying and their campaign contributions with all of the work that they're doing inside their organization. So we need rating, or there's lots of organizations that rate the sustainability of companies. We need them to pay attention to, well, what trade associations do they belong to? And are mm -hmm. they resonating with the individual company's uh, corporate statements about climate change? Um, let's talk about timeframes because there's a, you know climate is something that's unfolding. It's it's very happening faster than scientists predicted, but it unfolds over you know quite a, a extended period of time, longer than our intention spans, longer than a lot of uh, quarterly reports, short term thinking. The markets reinforce that. So if you're looking at a CEO, they they're incentivized to juice the stock price and do things in that short term interest. They may not align with you know being um, more sustainable and acting on energy and climate. Right. But at the same time, CEOs in many industries need to make investments that will have decades of life. You think about sort of power plants, for example. So what we want, and this is why it's so important for companies who just can't do this on their own. They need to have policies that describe like what will the environment be? You know, how can, can we stabilize what the environment will be for decades to come through, say, a price on carbon? That needs to be bilateral. Like we can't just have one party who has 51% try and impose rules so that when the other party comes in, they just back them out, right? This was what we saw, you know, Obama's best efforts because they didn't have the cooperation of Congress uh, to do much more as they tried to, to uh, impose some rules, which just got turned, turned around. So we need to sort of build a consensus in the populace to understand that we need to protect our next generation of, of cities and our next generation of companies uh, with more climate stability. So this is an area where CEOs could play a role. This is why CEOs have to not just say, my organization's still in, but we as a country have to still be in. And this is the pivot between thinking about what we do as an organization privately and what we do to try and set the rules of the game. And you write, I've written about Mark Benioff, CEO and uh, co-founder of Salesforce, talk, holding dinner, saying why activism is part of a CEO job. Yet there's also the cautionary tale of David Crane. David Crane was CEO of one of the largest electric utilities in the country. He tried to push more into renewable energy than his company and shareholders um, were willing to take. And he wrote a very strong uh letter to shareholders about sort of the moral responsibility of our children, et cetera. And uh, I remember interviewing him and saying, you know, the worst that can happen to me, I'm a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. They can fire me and give me a bunch of money to go away. And that's what happened. He got out uh, over his skis further than the shareholders in his company was willing to tolerate. And these are, you know, shareholders are 
you know, retired citizens who clip coupons for utilities. They rely on that uh, reliable income. So what does that cautionary tale say of David Crane, a CEO who gets too far out, gets shown to the door? Well, again, I think this is an example of why we need policy rather than organizations to work on their own. A lot of, there are, there's a lot of excitement about win-wins where you reduce environmental impact and you save money. And to be sure, there's plenty of those. But there's also win-loses where if you invest in environment or sustainability activities, it's going to cost you more. And so how do you persuade your shareholders to incur those costs? Well, maybe you can get customers to pay a premium for an environmentally beneficial product. But electricity, you know, you can if you're not the, the incumbent utility, if you have to charge a premium for, say, green power. And so you see some, some movements toward that. But if you can't, if you don't have a customer base who's willing to pay a premium, and the costs that you would bear by going uh, with a greener uh, electricity infrastructure are higher in, even in the short run, well, then you're going to have a problem like it sounds like the one we were just describing. So two things. like One is, well, what if you changed the requirements on, on the utilities so that you are not, as the CEO, getting ahead of your skis? You are working with the regulators who really have the responsibility to ensure we have a stable environment for the coming decades. And then it's those requirements that utilities would have to meet. So that would be one pivot. The other pivot, of course, now, uh, si since that story, uh, a lot of the costs of renewables have actually um, plummeted. So some of that, might, like, he might have been successful a decade later. Uh, and so sometimes just the timing's off for those type of moves. I, I uh, am an unsuccessful owner of the now defunct web van, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which was about two decades too early. Um, as as we wrap up, I just want to ask about you know you know looking towards this this future where um, we have potential for bipartisan agreement potentially under a Biden Harris administration um, that you know business support for something like that would be really critical. I can't think of you know CEOs who are really stepping out there and being out visible on climate. So what do you think about the prospect for corporate leadership and CEO leadership and trying to support? bipartisan action on climate in 2021? It's very interesting. I, I don't know. I am hoping, I mean, it would have been hard to predict 10 years ago that CEOs would be stepping out and talking about uh, religious freedom laws as a discriminatory move. So it's a little bit hard to predict where these trends are going to go. You know, we've got a lot of thinking to do in uh, our country about how do we think about science? Uh, you know, we're seeing right now, I think, the manifestation of decades of undermining science in climate change and in tobacco and in asbestos is now rearing its head with COVID. And the idea that wearing masks is a political statement rather than a scientific one is not something I would have forecast five years ago, yet here we are. So we have a good number of folks in the country who are rejecting science, viewing it as political. This is exactly where we are with climate. Uh, and so we have to figure out a way to uh, depoliticize science and get science back to where, where it used to be in our country. We, we have managed this tension between having a very religious country and also having a country that has a strong belief in science. And I think we have, we've lost that ability to hold both of those things in our heads at the same time. And, uh, and I think we've got to figure out how do we get that back. Mike Toffel is professor of environmental management at Harvard Business School and founder of the Climate Rising podcast. Thanks for coming on Climate One. Thanks for having me. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about corporate and CEO activism. Coming up, how corporations talk green and spend dirty. Corporations are very willing to do things to green their own businesses, but they are less willing to do anything to change the political environment to create the conditions necessary for climate action. That's up next when Climate One continues. Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part, we look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. 
Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Emily Atkin is an MSNBC contributor and author of the newsletter Heated, where she writes about the forces behind past and present inaction on climate. She recently called out some of the corporations that signed a letter urging President-elect Joe Biden to re-enter the Paris Climate Agreement and U.S. lawmakers to enact ambitious climate solutions. I was just curious if any of those companies that made these public-facing grand statements of wanting climate action in Congress, you know, well, who are they donating to in Congress? Uh, Who are they trying to get reelected? And I found that six of them are actively donating to the campaigns of uh, David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler, who are the two Republican candidates uh, running in the Georgia Senate runoff elections. Um, Both have gone on record being really hostile to climate change science, not to mention climate change regulation. So it was sort of like, so you're publicly saying that you want Congress to act on climate but you're donating to make sure that Congress never acts on climate. Um, why? And and myself and my co-reporter, Judd Legum of the newsletter Popular Information, you know, we reached out to all of these companies and either didn't get a response or the responses that we got were very confusing. And let's hear those six. Who are the companies? Um, the companies are Microsoft, Bank of America, General Motors, Goldman Sachs, Ford and Dominion Energy, which that was weird that they signed the letter in the first place. They're they're basically a fossil fuel company. So it's it very strange. So you've been calling out these companies for uh, talking green and and, uh, and spending dirty. Uh, part of that is green trolling. I hadn't heard of this until I read your column and heated. What is green trolling? Well, trolling is when you are on the internet and somebody says something that you don't agree with or or you think is stupid um, or hypocritical in some way, and then you just kind of call them out and make fun of them. Um, green trolling is doing that in service of an environmental issue. Uh, Mary Hegler, who writes the climate change newsletter, Hot Take, uh, coined the term, and she basically said that green trolling is a response to greenwashing. Uh, which is what corporations who talk green and spend dirty do. It's a greenwash. It's the public relations effort to make them look environmentally friendly when they're doing environmentally harmful things. So if you see a corporation on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, on any social media, any two-way social media platform where you can talk back, to a corporation, you see them saying something like, our sustainability is so awesome. You know, what Mary says is that you should reply to them and be like, oh, really? What about this? You know, and spam them with links and stuff like that. So she's really launched a, a movement to get people to do that. Right. And I've seen a couple of tweets where there's like an energy company said, what were you, what are you willing to do or give up? And she was like, right back, what are you willing to do or change right, right back at you in real time? Whereas I think the point is that a lot of PR and greenwashing is, is done through slick ads and kind of a one-way channels. And social media provides uh, a, a opportunity for, I guess, real-time fact-checking and calling BS on these on these companies. Right. And that's what I mean by a two-way conversation, right? When you see an ad on TV from Chevron being like, we are investing so much in biofuels and wind energy, and we are a partner in the climate crisis. All you can do is yell at your TV and say, no, you're not. Um, And that doesn't really do anything. But on social media, that's a two-way platform. You can talk back. Um, And anyone who sees that will also see what you say. And so in real time, you can expose the hypocrisy that you feel is going on. And then, you know, someone can make their own decision. And that's more powerful than you might think in terms of how bad that is for corporations that are greenwashing. What's your message to people who are working in a big corporation that does some good things, some bad things? They're not you know, deciding the climate policy. What about people working inside corporate America? I think the best thing that people working inside corporate America who want to see their uh, their corporations stop doing environmentally bad things from the inside, if their efforts on the inside aren't working, um, you should leak to journalists. 
I'm serious. No, I'm really serious because we depend on courageous people from the inside of corporations to, to tell us what's going on because everything that we get from corporations is basically, you know, it's a PR cover and it's really hard to discern what the truth is and be able to convey that truth to the public. The closest thing we have to truth is when it's a public company and we can listen to investor calls and investors, when investors ask tough questions and CEOs and executives are forced to answer those questions, that's when we start to get a glimpse. But even on those calls that the CEOs and executives give, they give PR-like answers. Um, and maybe they'll lose investors from it and maybe they won't. But the outcome is that I still don't know what the truth is of what's going on at this company. And therefore, the public doesn't know either. So uh, if you're working at a company that's doing something really you know, messed up and nothing you can do from the inside can change it, find a journalist you trust and let them know about it. And we'll figure out a way to make it so that you are, you know, you're not fired. Emily Atkin is author of The Heated Newsletter and a contributor at MSNBC. Thanks for joining us on Climate One. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Bill Weil is a computer scientist and former chief of sustainability at Google. He's also founder and executive director of Climate Voice, which helps employees push their companies not only to green their own operations, but also to advocate for broader policy changes. Companies like my employers, Google and Facebook, and many others are doing amazing work and showing amazing leadership in decarbonizing their own operations and even today decarbonizing their supply chains. And we need to decarbonize much faster uh, much, you know, much greater speed and at much greater scale across the entire economy. That takes much more than individual voluntary action by individuals like you and me or anyone listening or individual companies. It takes economy-wide action. And the big gap that, that I and a number of others see in political support for climate policy is companies that are very much pro-climate action, that are acting in their own operations, but they are mostly silent on public policy. So what I have embarked on and with a number of other people is an effort to get those companies to speak up on policy. And the way we're doing that is by educating and mobilizing the workforce. So we need policy and we need to get policy. We need corporate support because they hold so much influence in our legislative process and to get corporate support. You're going to the companies. Why are you focusing on tech companies rather than oil and gas companies? Um, there are a lot of people focused on oil and gas companies. And honestly, I think they, they, some of their employees are already quite active. Um, I think the oil and gas companies are hard to move um, because climate action is a threat to their basic business model and their revenue and their profit. And when they lobby on things, it's mostly obstruction and delay. On the other side, the non-fossil fuel companies, their businesses are not directly threatened by climate action. Sometimes they aren't particularly helped by climate action. Um, but if you look at the political balance of power on climate and, uh, you know, the amount of money the fossil fuel industry has spent decades amassing political power and kind of cementing political power. So to counter that, we need more political power. So I think there are people who are working to get the fossil fuel industry to be less bad. And I think that's really important. Nobody else has been working, I think, in this, the way we are to try to get other businesses to be much better, to move them from what I would characterize as good to being great on climate. Um, and to get them to use their considerable influence to counter the influence of the fossil fuel industry. Corporations are tribes with power structures, behavioral norms, rewards, and punishments. They're not democracies. So how do you think that employees inside companies can make them stronger advocates for climate action? Well, in the old days, back when you and I were young, and before that, there were these things called unions, which still exist. And in some sectors, some businesses, some kinds of jobs are still really important for, important for employees to exercise power. Um, in the tech industry and in most professional jobs that require college degrees and so on, um, unions are not the way that employees exercise power. Um, and I think that, that employees are just beginning in the last small number of years 
um, professional employees. They're just beginning to understand that they actually have a lot of power. They understand that these companies need the employees in some ways almost more than the employees need them. It might not be quite as true this year with the economy suffering because of COVID. But even then, I, I saw recently Amazon announced they have something like 33,000 open job positions. In, and these are not warehouse positions there. They probably have hundreds of thousands open at this point, given the way their business has gone this year. They have 33,000 open um, engineering sort of technical and corporate professional uh, positions. I mean, that's extraordinary. And the other major tech companies, you know, maybe not quite the same numbers, but but not that far off. So they are hiring and they are competing fiercely for top talent, which means if top talent expresses a strong opinion and says, we really want to work for a company that is all in on climate, that is doing everything it can to help us all uh, avoid the, the potentially catastrophic impacts of climate change, um, they're going to listen. And we have seen examples where companies have responded to employees uh, at some level, pressuring them, encouraging them, pushing them to behave differently. And that's true in public policy and it's true in their operations. So for you're talking about marriage equality is the marriage equality is the example that often comes up there where there was pressure on companies. Look, if you want the the, the best and the brightest of today, you need to. And Salesforce went to bat right, in Indiana and other places where where. So how is marriage equality an example of what you think might happen on climate? Right. So I think it's actually it's not it, 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 there are differences, but there are a lot of similarities. So 10 years ago, you had hundreds of companies who were very progressive in their internal operational policies on LGBT rights, uh, equal benefits for employees in domestic partnerships. Um, and, you know, this was back before marriage equality was the law of the land. Um, policies expressly prohibiting discrimination, hiring or promotion or who they serve. Um, but it was all about their own operations. And over the course of two or three years, that shifted dramatically. And many of those companies went to being very strong advocates for the kinds of social policies that would promote equality and prohibit discrimination across society. Um, they did that because employees made clear they really cared and they felt it was time for the companies to not just walk the walk internally, but to talk the talk externally and use their influence. And it was clear the feeling about all this on the part of um, college students, the, the sort of future workforce, had shifted in a way that for them it was a basic civil rights issue. And uh, outside groups like the Human Rights Campaign threatened the companies that if they didn't step up and really act as strong advocates, that they would be called out publicly for being complicit. And the companies understood that that would hurt their ability to hire the next generation of workers. So, so, so on climate, we've seen walkouts recently with Google and Amazon and others, some big employee walkouts putting pressure, do more, um, which was a, a first. And Jeff Bezos pledged $10 billion to address climate disruption. Amazon says it will achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2040. Other companies, including Best Buy, Mercedes, and Verizon, have joined that effort. Um, would that have happened without employee pressure? And is it greenwashing? Um, I think with some of these companies, it would have happened without the pressure. I think it, 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 it probably would have been slower. And I think some of these things might not have happened at all. Um, I, I honestly think it's real. And they are, what they've said they're going to do, they plan to do. Some of it, they don't entirely know how they're going to do it. And I think that's okay. These problems are hard. Um, when I was at Google and we decided we're going to be carbon neutral and we're going to, over time, move to 100% clean energy, we didn't know how to do that. We believed we could. We didn't entirely know how. Um, but the question of is it, is it greenwashing, I mean, there certainly are companies that put things out there that, that sound good but don't mean much, or they put out targets and then never do anything about them. And that is, I would argue, greenwashing. Um, I think what these companies are doing is real. They really are reducing emissions. That's really important. But to my mind, 
that's the leadership we've needed from them for the last decade. What we need for the next decade to get the change we need at the speed and scale we need it is not just voluntary action as bold as it might be by individual companies. We need economy-wide action. So having a company go carbon neutral by 2040, that's great. We need the whole economy to be carbon neutral by 2050. And there was a push in California, one of the most ambitious bills to get California to be 100% renewable energy. Um, that was once thought you know, unreachable or far away. Where were tech companies when many of them, their home state was considering legislation to go 100% renewable energy? Where was big tech? Well, I will say, so that bill was called SB 100. It was just over two years ago. It passed. And so, you know, if you're a legislative policy wonk, you'll say, it's a win. We won. Let's move on. But if you're worried about how do we get more of this kind of thing to happen in the future, it is important to look at the dynamics of how close was it, how, how it in fact almost failed. So why was it so close? Who supported it? Who didn't? How can we get more support behind similar things in the future? So um, it is an example of one of a number of state policies in the last few years where business support has really helped make the difference and helped it pass. So there were 30 plus companies that supported SB 100 very vocally. Salesforce and Adobe, and I think Autodesk, supported it. None of the other big tech companies supported it, at least not where there's any public record. Maybe they lobbied privately behind the scenes. We don't know. Um, they made no public statements about it. Um, and they all have their own internal 100% clean energy commitment. So here was their, for three of the big five tech companies, here was their home state wanting to make the same commitment they had made. And they were silent. And I think that's a problem. If we really want to solve climate change, those with enormous power need to use it to help solve it. I think, you know, Stanley, Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. These companies have a lot of power. We need them to use it for the common good on climate, not just for their own good. And employees have caused companies to change behavior on LGBT rights. They cause Google uh, by speaking out, cause Google to basically back away from these uh, custom AI solutions for oil and gas that they were uh, engaged in. So employees and, and students which, do have the- Which is walking away from money. Walking away from real money, right? Mm -hmm. um, so employees do have the power to move companies. And, but, but if you think about it, that is very much a capitalist lever. It's saying, look, you may be walking away from revenue, but the alternative is, if you don't do this, you can have a hard time hiring or retaining employees. And if that's the case, you're going to have a hard time actually growing your business, which is going to hurt your bottom line. So it provides a direct bottom line impact uh, to doing this, whereas with, without the employee pressure and the student pressure, um, there's no risk to companies for staying silent. And so naturally, they, they have tended to stay silent because they do see risk when they speak up. There is political risk. So that's what we're trying to change is the balance of risk benefit in that equation. And one way that companies have been able to say things publicly is they've been able to um, use the U.S. Chamber of Commerce as, as a kind of as a uh, shield to, to do their lobbying. So how do you and others hope to influence the U.S. Chamber of Co Commerce under a Biden-Harris administration with a split con Congress, where presumably, uh, if and when the politics are really tight, that business, you know, lobby is going to be very important to getting anything done. Uh, well, there there are two things. One is that some of the big companies that are members of the U.S. Chamber today, when they're silent on an issue and the chamber is vocal, along with the oil and gas companies, and the chamber and the oil and gas companies are lobbying against whatever climate policy, and everyone else is silent, then you've got the dominant, almost the only business voice is pushing for delay and obstruction. Um, so if we can get those climate-friendly companies to speak up, that will help counter the voice of the chamber and the oil companies, even if the chamber is still saying the same kind of thing. Um, the, the other place to push is to get the chamber to change. And it has begun to change. It's changed its rhetoric, its statements about climate, um, but it hasn't yet changed the way it's lobbying. Um, and 
we think there's an opportunity given the shift in the economy, the, as you said, you know, Apple, I think is worth five times Exxon. Now the five big tech companies are somewhere between 20 and 30% of the, the S and P 500 or something like that. I mean, it's, it's crazy how big they become. Um, they have a lot of potential power in the chamber that they mostly have not exercised. They've used the chamber as a place to get value on the things they really care about. And the fossil fuel industry has done the same. That we need to make them care about climate in a way where they change what the chamber is doing. So that's part of what we are trying to do with Climate Voice is to get companies not just to lobby directly, but to align their trade associations with what we need on climate. We don't have five years for a gradual change. We need to make some change pretty quickly. Bill Weil is founder and executive director of Climate Voice and former director of sustainability at Facebook. Thank you for sharing your insights with us on Climate One. Oh, it's a pleasure, Greg, as always. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce didn't respond to several requests for comment. You're listening to Climate One, and we're talking about the changing role of corporations in the climate conversation. Coming up, how corporate deniers project their own strategies and motivations onto the people concerned about a destabilized climate. Those who are worried about climate change, they're in fact the greedy ones. They are just fear-mongering. They have this extreme ulterior political motive. That's up next when Climate One continues. Hey, Climate One fans, we have some exciting news. We are now on Patreon. That means that you, as a subscriber, can get access to Climate One episodes free of ads interrupting your listening experience. For just $5 a month, your Patreon membership also gets you access to our Climate One Discord channel, where you can discuss the episode with other Climate One fans and begin to build your own climate community. Best of all, your support makes future Climate One episodes possible. Join us today at patreon.com slash climate one. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Barbara Fries is an environmental attorney and author of Industrial Strength Denial, Eight Stories of Corporations Defending the Indefensible from the Slave Trade to Climate Change. She previously served as an assistant attorney general of Minnesota. Beginning in 1995, she remembers encountering coal industry executives and others with what she calls, quote, jaw-dropping levels of denial of mountains of scientific evidence about climate change. And yet she found herself unable to write them off as evil or irrational. We had a proceeding in Minnesota where the, the coal industry brought certain scientific witnesses to testify to tell us we did not need to worry about climate change. In fact, it would probably be a good thing. We'd probably enjoy it if it happened at all. And all of those scientists, um, and, and we're talking here about the global scientific establishment on which the, the entire world had relied in, in putting together the um, framework convention on climate change, that all of those scientists were untrustworthy because they were politically biased or financially biased, maybe even religiously biased. It was actually fairly tame compared to what we have heard since and to what some of the groups industry has funded have been willing to say about the motives of those concerned about climate change. But but that's what I confronted. Um, and it, it just struck me as so bizarrely, well, almost suicidal from a civilizational standpoint to ignore these risks. And, and that made me wonder, you know, what's really going on with these people who, you know, seem fairly normal in, in all other respects. And that's really what got me looking at many other industries throughout history who have, that have similarly reflected these kinds of dangerous denials and, and seeing similarities among those industries. Right. And a lot of these people are highly intelligent. I know some highly intelligent people who, if not deny, they certainly dismiss or diminish climate change. So if it's not pure economic interest, is it because what drives it? Maybe there's a little bit of uh, economic self-interest, but what else is shaping this? Uh, well, it is tribalism. Um, which, you know, I, I've come to see not as something that we occasionally dip into, but as our natural state. And if we're not working to overcome it, we divide the world into us versus them. And that immediately influences how we think about reality and how we perceive the motives of those who are 
are not us. Um, there is the the distant impact that comes with climate change, the fact that um, it's going to be happening so globally and so far away, and it is so hard to actually pin responsibility on any given individual. Uh, there is certainly the ideology of the free market that is really making it very difficult to build any kind of a social consensus to take action. And we've seen that uh, build more and more really since the 80s and 90s. And, you know, one thing that we've seen so much of from the fossil fuel industry is what I call distrust building, right? Where, you know, instead of the trust building exercises that every corporate retreat has, it, it is, I think, a very conscious and a phenomenally successful effort to build distrust in mainstream science, mainstream media, government, certainly any government attempts to regulate uh, academia, and generally expertise. Um, so I think you've got all of these things combining to make uh, to make climate denial such a powerful force, make it easy for the industry, and make it incredibly successful if you measure it by how well it has penetrated uh, the pub public opinion, and especially if you measure it by how well it has captured uh, politics in this country and, and altered policy. And the smoking is often cited as kind of one of the the, found, the blueprints for kind of how to, to conduct denial campaign. Um, so, you know, how much has oil learned from smoking, from tobacco? Yeah, I think the fossil fuel industry has learned a lot from the tobacco industry. And of course, the tobacco industry, you know, had kept it up, kept kept the denial up for so long that they had a chance to explore and take advantage of lots of different techniques. One of the in things that the tobacco industry frequently did, of course, was use front groups or have pay, pay writers to write things, not making it clear that they were in the pay of the Tobacco Institute. And the use of front groups has been done very effectively by the fossil fuel industry to promote climate denial. One of the things that the tobacco industry did was always keep the burden of proof on its critics so that, you know, the conversation was skewed from the very beginning where the industry did not have to prove safety. The, its critics had to prove danger and the industry could perpetually peck away at it. The fossil fuel industry has very much done that. And then I think you can, you can draw some pretty direct links between the tobacco industry's attempt really starting at least in the 1980s, to try to diminish the credibility of the government. In, in 1986, the Tobacco Institute, which was already a poster child for corporate denial, uh, called for the investigation of the Surgeon General for scientific censorship, arguing that uh, the, the integrity of science was at stake and the Tobacco Institute was going to defend it. You know, that was something I think people laughed off at the time, but but after years and years of groups funded, some by the Tobacco Institute, some by lots of other industries trying to avoid regulation, lots of groups claiming junk science um, and, and saying that you cannot trust the government or, or mainstream scientists or academia, that I think really has had an effect. And I don't think it has increased credibility of industry, but it has decreased credibility in government and in expertise generally. And I think that has very much led to our political polarization of today. It gets to one of the interesting parts of the book that I really appreciated, which is that on projection and projection is a concept developed by Sigmund Freud. When people deny unconscious qualities, positive or negative about themselves and attribute them to others, it's associated with blame shifting. You write about companies projecting greed and hoaxes onto others. You know, how does this play out other than saying we should investigate the Surgeon General? Right. Well, I think the tobacco industry did pioneer that, um, as so many other forms of denial. But in the fossil fuel industry in particular, and the groups they fund, you know, they have been credibly accused of a lot of things, like, for example, being motivated by money. Well, one of the claims they make is that those who are worried about climate change, they're in fact the greedy ones, and they are doing it because they simply want to get scientific grant money. Um, I mean, it's pretty 
astonishing because, of course, it requires us to believe that these scientists have just gone rogue and have stayed rogue for some 30, 40 years in, in a conspiracy that is global uh, and that all of these people choose to to use their hard-won uh, learning to study a fake problem rather than to actually focus on something that's real. Uh, that is one of the, the most astonishing forms of projection. Another thing that, that astonished me was the claims that um, those concerned about climate change have this extreme ulterior political motive uh, when, in fact, many of the groups who are most vocal and, frankly, unhinged when it comes to their climate denial are strongly associated with the most extreme form of market fundamentalism and, and market libertarianism uh, to the point where they advocate dismantling pretty much all of the environmental and consumer protections that have been put in place in recent decades and, and minimizing the role of government generally and, and trusting more to unfettered market forces. Uh, so that's a second form of, of projection. Another one, of course, is claims that people concerned about climate change are just fear-mongering, just trying to raise fears in others, uh, whether they believe in them themselves. Um, another form of, of projection, I think, are the claims that the climate scientists who are uh, effectively denying the risk are being subjected to unfair persecution. They they sort of want to portray themselves as these valiant Galileo figures who are standing up against an orthodoxy. Uh, in fact, the political persecution has actually been against the climate scientists, many of whom have had, you know, tremendous opposition lawsuits. Um, challenges trying to trying to obtain all of their emails and and whatnot uh so so i think the political persecution claim goes better the other direction but it is yet another example of of projection climate is perfectly designed for the weakness of human cognition it's incremental it's indirect the proverbial frog in the boiling water who doesn't notice it and doesn't get out in time before it dies but you're writing about denial as a social phenomenon it comes from a different angle that i Appreciated. You say that if a supervillain wanted to design a society that would encourage people to impose grave risks on each other and their home, the society the villain would design would look a lot like the modern corporate dominated global economy that we have. Explain what you mean by that. Well, part of it, of course, is tribalism, as we've been discussing, and the corporation is a tribe, effectively, in competition with other tribes. So I think it dips right into that very ancient, primitive sense of tribalism with which we evolved. Um, it is an artificial human. That's what corporation, what corpus comes from, the Latin word for body, that allows people to uh, shift moral responsibility away from themselves and onto the corporation. Of course, major corporations have tremendous division of labor, which is one of the reasons why people don't feel socially responsible for its consequences. But the corporation is unique in that it is also uh, designed to protect its owners from liability, which is to say from social responsibility. So um, the, the limited liability in, that is uh, built into every corporation means that the shareholders don't have to feel particularly responsible for the harm the corporation may do. They certainly don't have to feel legally responsible and they're so distant and they don't know what's going on most times anyway that they're not likely to feel responsible management of the corporation isn't going to feel too responsible because they've been told uh, that their primary role is to maximize shareholder profits. So to the extent that they are thinking about impacts to a larger group, they're thinking more likely about their shareholders than about society. Those lower uh, on the totem pole aren't going to feel particularly responsible for the negative consequences of what they do because they will have ceded that responsibility to management. So the corporation, I think, really is designed to promote denial and to diminish uh, social responsibility and to enhance bias. So what's the solution? You're saying that, that corporations are tribes. They're basically the organizing entity for society these days. Do you think we need to dramatically change the corporate form? Do we need to really dramatically change capitalism? 
Well, I think it's helpful to recognize that this is a big problem with capitalism. The way I normally think about this is that if we could reform corporations someday to make them less prone to denial and less willing to um, harm society and, and other humans, that would be great. I don't know how to do that. I think it'll take a long time to figure that out. And I applaud those who are experimenting with ways to build more socially responsible corporations. Right now, I think we simply have to recognize that corporations are a powerful force, a force that is too powerful in terms of controlling our democracy, and to try to push back against corporate denial through the, the methods that have worked in the past, through uh, social activism, through attentive independent media, through independent science, um, through lawsuits and, and medical groups getting involved and pointing out medical concerns through state and federal legislatures holding hearings, ultimately passing laws and, and then putting in place agencies to enforce those laws. Because, of course, the industries are in it for the long haul and they can maintain a campaign of denial for decades. And so we need, I believe, something equally institutionalized to, to keep track of that and push back against that and try to keep promoting independent science and, and independent analysis of the data uh, rather than just getting what we hear from the industry. Barbara Fries, thank you so much for coming on Climate One. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate the conversation. Barbara Fries is an environmental attorney and author of Industrial Strength Denial, Eight Stories of Corporations Defending the Indefensible from the Slave Trade to Climate Change. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review in your podcast application. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. Hey, Climate One fans. We've all gotten used to a subscription model for paying for the things we really value. Here at Climate One, it's no different. We produce this show every week for free, and now we're offering you an opportunity to get our show free of ads. For just $5 per month, you can join us on Patreon and get access to our episodes free of ads and get access to our exclusive Climate One Discord channel. That allows you to discuss the episode with other Climate One fans and begin to build your own climate community. Best of all, your support makes future Climate One episodes possible. Join us today at patreon.com slash climate one.